0: it's time time for silver and black today to the ground game touchdown
1: las vegas we're breaking down the latest raider news from on and off the field and bringing you
0: conversations with newsmakers and record breakers so hold on raider nation it's time to get Get it it on on. here's your host scott goldbranson and mo Molten.
1: welcome back silver and black today an odyssey original podcast also If you're listening to us on 98.5, the fan over the air in Las Vegas or on 1140 The Bet. Hey there, how are you? Hope you're doing well in the Silver State. We are here to talk about Raiders football. I am Scott Cobranston, your host. Mo Moat, my co-host, still under the weather a little bit. Hope to get him back early next week. So keep him in your thoughts and prayers as he gets healthy. Today we have a very special show. We will get to Raiders news and views Coming up, the release of Jonathan Abram, what's happening with this roster, the status of Darren Waller heading into this game on Sunday against the Indianapolis Colts at Allegiant Stadium there in Las Vegas. But first, we're going to talk to Jeff Perlman, the author of The Last Folk Hero, The Myth, right? The Myth and the Life of Bo Jackson. Of course, Raiders, great running back. All of you have a great uh, affinity for Bo Jackson, as I know I do growing up in that era. And so, Jeff Perlman, uh, the writer of nine books, best selling New York Times best selling author, former Sports Illustrated, of course, wrote Showtime, which turned you know, about the Los Angeles Lakers, of course, which turned into the HBO series. He's going to be with us in a few minutes. We're going to talk about Bo Jackson and his book. Really, really interesting stuff. Do us a favor, though, before we get to Jeff, make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to us. If you're listening to us on the radio on 98.5 The Fan in Las Vegas, that's fine, too. You can go up on the Odyssey app, subscribe to the podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you listen to them on Apple, listen to it on Google, on your Amazon Alexa, you can find us there. You can find us on Audible, wherever you get books on tape you get any of that stuff, you'll find Silver and Black today, uh, thanks to the power of the massive Odyssey network. So we're excited to have you here and we appreciate you. Also, uh, for our mailbag show, if you'd like to send us any questions or comments, hit mail at silverandblacktoday.com. That's mail at silverandblacktoday.com. And we will get to your questions on our very popular mailbag show, which is usually on Wednesday, but with most sick, I was waiting to see if he get better. So we'll drop some mail uh, bag show here uh, on Friday. So we appreciate you being with us. And now it's time to talk a little bit about Bo Jackson. All right, now joining us, author Jeff Perlman, of course, uh, journalist from SI, ESPN back in the day, and the author of nine books, including Showtime, which a lot of people know from the HBO series, was adapted, uh, and a lot of us watched uh, over the past year. So, Jeff, thanks for being with us here on Silver and Black today.
0: No, oh, my pleasure. You know, they changed the name. The book was called Showtime, but the show was called Winning Time because they couldn't winning have time. a show called because they couldn't have a show on HBO called Showtime when uh, you know, in Winning Time and. So what can you do?
1: And Showtime HBO, right? Confusing for people, I'm sure, too. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, But a lot of, as you know, a lot of Raider fans from L.A. are Lakers fans. So I know they're familiar with your work down there as well. Uh, But I want to jump into this. I mean, the book, The Last Folk Hero. To me, when, when I saw this come across my email that your book was coming out, and it was about Bo Jackson, I could think of no better title, because for those of us old enough to remember the days before social media and and cell phones, yes, I'm aging myself, um, we remember there were stories, but you didn't necessarily have proof. Talk a little bit about the title of the book and how it really relates to this whole story of Bo Jackson.
0: Well, it came from something Joe Posnanski, a really great writer, said, which was he was the one who referred to Bo as the last folk hero. And I think he was referring specifically to the famous throw Bo made when he was with the Royals and Harold Reynolds. He threw out Harold Reynolds at home in the kingdom. And he made the point, if you watch that play on on YouTube, you never see Bo release the ball. It was basically a one camera shot. And when Bo released the ball, the cameras focused on Harold Reynolds. So it's like, how do we know he did it if we didn't see it? And that applies to so much of Bo Jackson. How do we know he ran a 4:13.40 at Auburn? Um, how do we know he, you know, hit the hit hit the lights in the first night game at uh, you know University of Georgia's baseball team? How do we know he did this? How do we know he did that? And it really adds to it all. The mythology of Bo is that we don't we don't know for sure. We we pass down <laughs> stories the way we pass down myths and paul bunyan and zeus and you know john henry and that's what's kind of cool about it we don't always know we're just guessing and telling stories
1: yeah and it it sort of enriches i mean those of us who've watched the video watched him play when he played we we saw it with our own eyes not that stuff but i that reminds me of a story in the book and i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of take an aside here because it's an incredible story and i think it uh, underscores exactly what you're saying and that is Fast forward Bo Jackson post-injuries with the White Sox. They're flying back, and I forgot what city say. They're flying back from California or somewhere. And the yeah. plane gets in trouble, and you hear all these stories about Bo Jackson saved the Chicago White Sox, uh, and their plane from crashing. Tell that story and just how it kind of feeds into that mythology and into this folk hero status.
0: Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories. I didn't know about it. He, um, They're flying back. They play the Angels. They're flying back to Chicago. And plane there was a charter jet an american west charter catches on fire one side one engine catches on fire and players start freaking out you know tim raines opens the thing he sees the light the flames on fire and all the players are freaking out and all of a sudden bo Jackson comes out of the cockpit and he's like all right everyone calm down calm down the pilots have it under control we're going to be okay blah blah blah. but then there's a second version i was told where he doesn't come out of the cockpit he actually runs up to the cockpit to help the pilots and see what he can do to help the pilots. So. <laughs> I always say because it's Bo Jackson, maybe both stories are true. Maybe he did both at the same time. The plane makes an emergency landing in Des Moines, Iowa. It's 3 30 in the morning, airport's empty. Players are shaken and they're rattled and they, they enter the, the, the terminal. And there's um there's a kiosk where they sell like pretzels and beer, but it's closed. But there's a um there's a, a keg, there's a keg with a lock on it. And Bo Jackson, this is told by many people, walks up. Breaks the lock off the keg and starts pouring <laughs> beer to all his teammates. And I always say, like, the story always ends. He poured beer for all of us. And I say, mythology wise, where'd the cups come from? Like, who <laughs> provides the cups? Where are they from?
1: He doesn't need cups. It's Bo Jackson, right? No. Uh... He
0: made the cups. He cobbled the cups out of wood. <laughs>
1: took the airport seats and made cups out of them. That's right. Uh, Jeff, I mean, let's go back to, and we'll we'll get into the the, the football and and all that as well, too, as Raider fans would love to hear about it. But uh, we go back, and I think it's important to talk about the beginnings of Bo Jackson, his childhood, because it was not obviously even close to being uh, a privileged childhood. It was the opposite of that. How did this, being one of 10 children with a single mother who was working, I believe, as a maid in a motel, if I remember from the book, and and really just this amazing life where he, didn't, he couldn't even afford clothes or shoes, talk about those beginnings and how that helped shaped who he would become in his athletic career later in life.
0: I was actually just thinking why you're asking that. In sports, I think we become numb to the hard scrabble stories. You know what I mean? There's so many hard scrabble stories. There's so many of these guys worked their butts off from. But what he faced is just different level. He was actually one of 11, and he was one of 10 living in this house. Single mom, Florence Bond. um, Three-room house, 10 kids and a mom. Uh, They slept on the floor. Bo would oftentimes rub up against the wood-burning stove at night and wake up in the morning with burns on his body. Um, he would wear his sister's hand-me-down shoes to school or socks, like just socks to school. He uh, he had a severe, severe stutter. Um, he was held back a grade. And it was awful, like it was really awful. And he, you know, probably because of that, you can do some Freud on it. He wound up being this really big bully, like a bully of a kid where he would steal people's money, and steal their bikes. And his mom would beat the crap out of him. And he actually got his nickname. His nickname, Bo is short for Bohog, which is short for Boarhog. hog, because when he was 12, him, him and a, a couple of his friends went to the neighborhood's farm, a, a neighbor's uh, farm, and st- for three straight days beat the crap out of a boar hog with a bunch of sticks trying to kill it. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. And they, they got caught, and Bo, who was Vincent Edward at the time, was terrified of being sent to reform school because he had a brother who went to reform school, and his brother told him stories that if you go to reform school, they will rape you. So he had this oh. horrible fear of getting raped at reform school. So he gets this nickname Bo, but he also has this fear of getting, you know, basically sent off to the reform school. Local coaches start seeing this kid has talent. He plays summer league baseball and such, and he gets to Macadory High, and that's where they really, you know, when you come from that, the depths of that poverty, and you see, whoa, wait a second. Maybe I can go to college doing this, or maybe I can sign a contract doing this. Maybe I can make money for my mom. Maybe I can get her out of this area. Uh, it's a great motivator, and that's what it was for Bo.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And and obviously, Bo Jackson, uh, the one thing that we talk about when 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 I hear from fans and listeners of the show is just about what an amazing uh, athlete he was physically, and and how he that was who he was, right? So a lot of that plays into some of the folklore and the mythology and the truth, right? As you outline in the book, which is. Bo didn't like to practice. He didn't want to practice. We had another author on a couple years ago who wrote a book about Bo. And he talked about how at college when Bo was at Auburn and was running track, playing football, playing baseball, um, he also won, I think, the table tennis ch- championship. So one of those, one of those, again, lore things, but that he was just such, a, a kid with such God-given ability that he didn't need to really work all that much at it like some of the other athletes you see in that phase of their life.
0: It's actually a really complicated thing in a way to talk about because mm. you read the Auburn media guides back in the 80s and they go with some really ugly tropes, which is, mm. I'm not kidding when I say this, almost every white guy is described as scrappy, hardworking, dogged, driven. <laughs> and almost every African-American player is gifted, talented, cobra-like, you know, all the all the nonsense. So on the one hand, I hate describing Bo in these sort of terms as just he's just a natural athlete but he really was like, he mm. really was. He wasn't just Lionel James or Pat Washington, like really good players who did have to work super hard. Bo was so above them and he was so blessed with these gifts and he was naturally fast and naturally strong. And he had this body, he did not lift weights. He just had this Zeus like body, you know, he uh, he didn't swim, He didn't, but he had endurance. Like the get, he really learned to work hard after the injury in the 1991 playoff game when he had to come back. That's when he really learned to work hard. But until that point, one of the great and I think kind of fair criticisms of Bo is that he let his athleticism dictate his his career, mm. and maybe could have worked a little harder. I mean, the results though, it's hard to argue with most of the results.
1: <laughs> That's true, and I mean, I mean, longevity, those types of things, you have to wonder. And I and I know you kind of mentioned in the book a little bit, which is, had he done those things, would he have? Would his hip had given out the way it did, all those kind of things. And of course we don't know uh, because we, we, he didn't do it. So we just don't know. But when you look at Bo Jackson too, at that time in Auburn in college, I'm always, I was struck by, first of all, the level of research and the conversations you had for this book. And I know you did it during COVID, which was an incredible challenge, but you still, as you've done in all your works, you go so deep, which many authors don't do. So thank you for doing that. But those stories at Auburn getting there His mom wouldn't let him play football right when he was younger. Uh, He finally plays in high school and, and starts to be the player that people look to and see, but he, the way he ended up at Auburn was even interesting, wasn't it?
0: Oh, it's great. So first of all, (laughs) he's, uh, he's drafted in the second round by the New York Yankees coming out of high school. And I think he would have been the first overall pick, except there were real doubts whether he would, he would sign. And, the Yankees had a scout named Gus Palouse, who was all about Bo Jackson, like all about Bo Jackson. And they draft him in the second round, and they call him, and no nobody answers the phone. And they call again, nobody answers the phone. The Yankees send someone to knock on the door. Nobody answers the door. They call his high school baseball coach with the greatest offer ever. You're Like you're Bo Jackson, you're 19 years old, you've only left the state of Alabama one time, and it was to go to Six Flags in Atlanta, right? And the Yankees call, and they say, we want to fly you and your baseball coach to New York, to come to Yankee Stadium and watch Yankees-Red Sox. And they thought this will be the enticer. But Bo couldn't name one member of the Yankees-Red the Red Sox. He didn't know the Yankees-Red and the Red Sox <laughs> like It wasn't his world. So, no, it wasn't him. His mom really wanted him to go to college. And also Auburn put this real full-court press on him, and they broke out the boosters, and they guarded his mom. Like when his mom would come to his high school games, Auburn would have people sitting on both sides of her so people couldn't approach her, so scouts couldn't go up to her. They really guarded him because he was a very prized, obviously prized recruit for them.
1: Yeah, and he goes to Auburn, and obviously we know uh, about the baseball, because he parlayed that into a professional career as well. Uh, but that baseball career, I mean, the story, you t- you have to tell the story about the Georgia game, because reading that in the book, I had heard a little bit about it, but the timing of it, and when the game occurred in relation to a big cultural moment in film with the same scene, is remarkable. Tell that story about that game the first night down there in Georgia.
0: Yeah, I didn't believe it, actually. When people first told me that, and then I interviewed so many people, I was like, wow, this crap really happened. So it's uh, <laughs> it's junior year, and all, uh, University of Georgia's Foley Field is finally having a night game. The coach, Steve Weber, had wanted lights for years. They finally get lights. And they bring in Auburn. And that's a big deal because Bo, at this point, is basically Auburn is saying, we have the new Herschel Walker. And, mm-hmm. you know, pre-politics, pre-all that, Herschel Walker <laughs> was a god in Georgia, just an absolute god. And there, it was it was blasphemy to say we have the new Herschel Walker, but Bo Jackson was the new Herschel Walker. So he's playing right field. And um, at the, the Georgia's field, behind right field, they had the fence, and then they had a thing called Kudzu Hill where fans could sit and drink because it was outside the premises. And they just rode Bo Jackson. And the first at-bat, Bo Jackson flies out. The fans just give him nonstop grief. Where he comes up again. OK, Bo Jackson comes up for a second at bat and he hits a um, he hits a ball so far that it hits the lights. It actually hits the lights. And this is 39 days before the natural comes out in movie theater. So he hits the lights. I talked to a great writer, Tommy Tomlinson, who's been a writer for years in the South. He happened to be at that game because he was a Georgia student. He's covered sports for years. He said it's the hardest hit ball he's ever seen, hands down. Um, Bo Jackson jogs back out to right field. These same fans who are just making his life miserable start bowing and you just sit at him. His <laughs> next at-bat, he homers. The at-bat at bat after that, he homers. His last at-bat, he doubles, and they boo him.
1: Oh, my gosh. And yeah, and the timing before the natural coming out 39 days later is yep. – it w- Reading that, I was I had to read it twice to to make sure it was this a typo, uh, but amazing, amazing stuff about him. And then, of course, his NFL career and, and obviously we cover the Raiders, but the NFL career and how it came to be is really interesting as well, because the story most people know, at least the basis of the story, which is he's playing baseball at Auburn. He gets an offer. Uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers want to draft him. They want to fly him down and talk to him. And that ends up ending his baseball career at Auburn. Talk about that and, and how that whole situation with the Buccaneers really kind of changed his perspective and really hurt him from the perspective that he wanted to play baseball as well.
0: First, I just want to say I've loved every question you've asked so far. Like, Oh, this I is appreciate my joy. <laughs> Yeah, um, It's amazing. It's a great story. I mean, he's a, it is. He's a senior at Auburn and he's playing baseball and he's having the time of his life and the tampa bay buccaneers finished 2 and 14 the year before because they were ridiculously bad and um they know they're gonna have the number one pick in the draft so Bo had an agent at this point which obviously you were not supposed to have and his agent reached out to the buccaneers and you culverhouse was the owner and they agreed that Bo would fly in to tampa on the tampa bay buccaneers owner's plane for a physical this is before the draft well Bo thinks everything is cleared, flies in, comes back. And Hal Baird, the baseball coach at Auburn, they're playing uh, Alabama-Birmingham that night in a game. And Hal Baird is like, where's Bo? And one of the players is like, he went to Tampa Bay. And Hal <laughs> Baird is like, wait, what do you mean? He's like, I flew to the, buck. the Buccaneers, flew him in for a physical. And Hal Baird, who was kind of a guy the by the book guy, was like, oh, no, this is a real problem. And um, because at the time, most conferences, you could be amateur in one sport, pro in another. The SEC... And it's so preposterous man because like mm. so many of those guys are getting paid of so course. many of those guys are, i mean it's such a joke it's actually yeah. not even. it's ridiculous so but they call the sec commissioner and he's like yeah no he can't play anymore and you know Hal baird and pat Dye, the football coach are incredulous and they're screaming at the commissioner and he can't play so bo loses his baseball eligibility and he's livid and he swears he would never sign with tampa bay but the Buccaneers, because they were just idiots, they decided to draft Bo number one anyway. <laughs> Even though Lehman Bennett, the head coach at the time, said to Culverhouse, he's like, we can't draft him unless you know he's going to sign here. And Culverhouse is like, nah, he'll sign here. We'll pay him a lot of money. So they draft him. Bo's aides and say, um, just go to Tampa and meet with them. So Bo flies in, and you, Culverhouse, the owner of the team, and Steve Young, who's the quarterback at the time of the Bucks, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. take Bo out for a steak dinner. And Steve Young is there just to help woo Bo. He just, he does it. And Culverhouse excuses himself from the table. And Bo leans into Steve Young and says, yo, man, just so you know, there's no effing way I'm ever signing with this team. And (laughs) Steve Young is like, all right, I guess Um. my work is done here. (laughs) Oh um, my gosh. And a year later, he enters the draft. He plays baseball and he signs with the Rose. A year later, he enters the draft. And one thing that's never come out, I talked to Chris Woods, who was a former Raiders receiver and also played with Bo at Auburn. And Woods told me very specifically that when he joined the Raiders, Bo Jackson called him up and said, tell Al Davis I want to play for the Raiders. So the Raiders used a late pick, a late draft pick on Bo. Just, well, maybe he'll want to play for us. And then he, he decided to.
1: Yeah, remarkable uh, a journey. I mean, that whole situation. And, and yeah, ha- having, having at that time, especially now, now we have – uh, all of the stuff with college sports, at least start trying to be righted now, where these guys are getting some of this yeah. m- multi billion dollars worth of money that these kids produce uh, for these schools and get zero of it. All right, we're back with author Jeff Perlman, author of The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Uh, but then we fast forward now, uh, Jeff, to to the, his football career. The Raiders take him in the draft, uh, but he, there's a wrinkle there, right? So Al Davis, of course, always, as you know, uh, was, was hot after the best talent he could get. It didn't matter who it was, uh, and Bo Jackson clearly falls to them uh, late in the draft. Then... Um, Bo wants to play both sports though. Right. So Al Davis tells him, well, what does Al da- when he comes in and says, I want to play baseball too. Al Davis doesn't care. Right.
0: I mean, he'd prefer he'd play football year round, but the idea <laughs> yeah. was, all right. You know, that's cool. I mean, if you think about it, not necessarily personality wise, cause Bo was kind of quiet and prickly, but like yeah. Bo is the, Bo is he's in that line with the Matuzaks and the Alzedos yes. and the Lester Hayes where, he was sort of a creative signing. And Al Davis said to him, "Just w- when baseball season's over, just come. Take two weeks off. Come play with us the rest of the season. That's cool. And, when you know, it's funny because Bo Jackson, when he agreed to play with the Raiders and he had a press conference, he said, "Um, it's my hobby. It's going to be my hobby. <laughs> and that went over like a fart in the room with both sure. sports. I mean, with the Royal, the Royal players were furious because a lot of these guys couldn't play basketball in the offseason like contractually he couldn't go jet skiing couldn't and we're gonna let this guy play in the nfl and for raider players it's a hobby really what i do <laughs> that's a hobby that's how you see us so when bo showed up with the raiders he was not walking in this super friendly territory
1: yeah yeah and then i mean and then he gets there and and there are some players who warm to him and 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 sort of uh, understand what they see when they see him out there performing. But even even in, in as a professional in the NFL, he did not want to take part in uh, drills. It's not like, and even baseball. He didn't show up to early spring training, none of that. He just kind of wanted to get out there and perform. On the football side of things, and especially with the Raiders, uh, we saw what he was able to do. Of course, there's so many seminal moments. I mean, there's there's not a hundred of them like there are some for some players who played a lot longer. But Bo Jackson, the Monday Night Football game in Seattle, the Brian Bosworth trucking, all that stuff just plays into that folklore of Bo Jackson. But as a football player, and as his, in his time in the Raider at the Raiders, um, what did what could he have been, Jeff? Had he maybe done one sport or had he put in more time? Do we know that? Is it part of the folklore that we guess what it could have been?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think if he had been a full-time football player, I think he's in that Jim Brown, Emmett Smith, Walter Payton echelon. I really do. I mean, there are people I talk to who swear he would have been the greatest football player who ever lived. If you look at the combination of speed, strength, agility. And when you talk to people in baseball, they say, if he had played baseball full-time and never touched football never went to the Raiders, he had Mike Trout, Mickey Mantle, Roberto Clemente talent. Like he was yes. that level. Yes. Um, the problem is he never could have become both. He couldn't become both <laughs> playing two sports. It's just not, you know, he needed development. And he needed time more in baseball than football. I think he could have jumped into the NFL immediately and been a super-duper star. Um, but you know what? I will say one thing. I don't think people always say, like, is it a shame? Like, is it a shame? Oh, it's such a shame. It's so sad. I don't see it that way. I Like, all right, so let's say he goes to the NFL Hall of Fame. Okay, cool. He has a bust in a museum, and we go see it, and we say, oh, that's Bo Jackson. (laughs) But right now, we're having this conversation because we're talking about a guy who did something no one else did, and he did something at such a ludicrously high level. And his legacy – if he had just played football, he would have gone – all right, he would have gone down as a great football player. If he played baseball, he would have gone down as a great baseball player. We're now talking about a guy who – again, I'll make this argument, is probably the greatest athlete who's ever walked the earth. And we wouldn't be making that argument if he only played one sport.
1: No, agreed. And I mean, you you talk about that football side. And, and one of the things that I'm struck by and reading your book, too, was um, his attitude towards all of this, right? Which is some people would look at it as um, not even cocky, just kind of like he just doesn't care. Uh, and he doesn't in many ways. He 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 accomplished what he wanted to do. He's got a great life you outline in the book. You talk about it. I know you talked to him before the book. He didn't want to take part in it because that's not who he is. But he was fine with you writing it. And um, he lives this great life. He does his hunting. He's got his business ventures that he's been involved with, his charity work, all that stuff. But that's one of the things that I took away from your book that I think we could apply. All of us could apply more in our lives, Jeff, which is who cares what people think? Just do, do what you want to do, love what you want to do, and focus on your family. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters most to Bo Jackson is his family.
0: 100%. And I, you will never see that guy on TV criticizing Josh Jacobs. Never. Right. Like, because right. It's just not him. It's not, it's not in his DNA. It's not who he is. He doesn't want that. Um, I think he always had a really good understanding of, the fleeting nature of sports. And I also don't think he's a guy who really ever wanted to live in the past, who wanted to tell, he's not a guy who wants to tell the story of Monday night football a million times. He doesn't want to make that a cottage industry. Um, And I respect that. And also it makes for a million times better book. Like I really, (laughs) there's a reason I didn't write the Marcus Allen biography because we know how it ended and that's cool. And it's fine. We know how it ended here. And we see Marcus Allen still. He does events, and you'll see him at a Raider thing, and blah, blah. Like, Bo Jackson vanished. He's a ghost. He is gone. You'll see him every now and then, but he's basically a ghost. He stopped playing in 1994. He did not come to spring training the next year. He was done. He was off somewhere fishing by himself. He is a ghost. That's what's cool about him.
1: Yeah, no question. And I think that that, that lesson, too, of, of just being able to walk away from it, because uh, this is a guy who w- loved challenges, right? He, he wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he didn't really care, like the Hall of Fame, all that stuff. He, he doesn't care about that stuff. He doesn't. He really doesn't. And when you, oh, come on, because you and I, especially you and your long career, you've been around a lot of athletes. And you know what I mean when I tell you, you get around some of these older athletes who've since retired, and they don't want to let go of it. They want to continue to live it, and you know some of them do it well. They're they're ambassadors. They do all kinds of great things. So I'm not criticizing them. But Bo Jackson, he he has that ability. Which uh, if we could all do that in some ways, uh, we would live happier lives because he's able to just move on to what he believes is important in his life.
0: I actually envy him in that way. I really do. I um, sometimes I feel like my love of nostalgia mm. is a is a crutch, is a cripple, is a a a negative more than a positive like i would love to just have a moment in life move on not thinking about the past just move on move on move on next next what am i looking forward to um it wouldn't make my books probably as interesting because it's based in nostalgia but i do admire and envy people who are able to all right i did this i'm done with that and just moving on to the next thing i think it's very very unique especially in sports i mean one of the haunting natures of sports and something that really damns a lot of athletes is your greatest stories come from when you're 28 and they come from something you can never do again. Right. And I can understand why you're lassoed with that and why you feel like you need to keep holding on to that. But he somehow doesn't.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, there's a great book. uh, And it talks about life as like a football game in four quarters, right? And you have four quarters to your life, your, your fourth quarter kind of being as you get late fifties into your sixties and how there's, meaning and importance in each of those quarters. And you don't want to go back and remember the third or the second quarter other than lessons you learned, right? You learn lessons from those, but moving, f- it's always about moving forward in that next phase. And you're right. So, so I too share that as a lesson that I could take in and, and, and hopefully instill in my life. The one thing I want to just jump back on before I let you go, Jeff, and thank you so much for being generous with your time is uh, the injury. So Bo Jackson, the playoff game with the Raiders against the Bengals, um, the injury I don't think still a lot of the fans who listen to our show and follow the Raiders understand how bad that injury was he even took criticism about being soft and not getting back on the field the next week talk about that injury and and how it changed or how bad it was and frankly how the Raiders mishandled it at the time
0: well it was really bad it came in the playoff games third quarter Raiders bangos at the LA Coliseum Bo's on this run down the sideline, and a Bengals linebacker named Kevin Walker grabs his leg, the back of his leg, as Bo is moving forward at, a, you know, obviously a high velocity, and the the he basically yanks the hip out of the socket. Oof. And it's a really bad injury. And actually, Bo kind of put his hip, wibble, wiggled his hip back in the socket, which is both gross and impressive. <laughs> and um, the injury is called a vascular necrosis, and it's basically um, – the deadening of a body part so very quickly um your hip and the muscles around it start to die uh and he went for a um like a scan the next day and the doctor said uh you see all that black and there was a large pool of black like on the screen and I was like yeah and he said that is all blood so he had basically Whoa. all this blood pooling around to see if it's really disgusting and um yeah the raiders kind of botched it like uh he's sitting on the sideline toward the game, you know, at the end of the game and he's in the locker room after the game. And he should have been in modern times. He would have been rushed to a hospital as soon as he's out of that.
1: Yeah. Internal bleeding. I mean, you could, you could could die from
0: it. Yeah. They're lucky. He didn't sue him to be honest. It was really bad. And um, it's funny because the next week the Raiders played the Buffalo bills in the uh, AFC championship game and got absolutely demolished. And Bo was at that game on crutches, watching the game. And several newspaper writers ripped him, said, why isn't he playing? He doesn't want it. Todd Christensen, the former Raider tight end, was really hard on him. Uh, There was a lot of, have Marcus runs through a wall? Why won't Bo run through a wall? And uh, meanwhile, his, his hip is dying. So they were wrong.
1: Yeah, just incredible. And and I'll tell you, I think, uh, number one, Raider Nation, you have to buy the book, right? If you're a Raiders fan, uh, you have to go get this one. And make sure you also follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Perlman, also JeffPerlman.com. Before we let you go, Jeff, I think, you know, one of the the issues or one of the things with the with Bo Jackson, too, is is just this um, sense, for me at least, and I don't know if you get this as well, I'm sure there's some other examples, but in a world today where we live uh, with with amazing athletes like LeBron James or, as you mentioned, uh, Mike Trout, these guys who uh, make a separate brand of themselves, Bo Jackson was the first guy to kind of do that before you had all these ways to do it, before you had your own channels like Twitter and Instagram uh, and all of these other things. That deal with Nike, he really was, and I guess, I don't know, he might... Uh, want to beat me for this calling him this but he was the grandfather of all that was he not
0: well i'd say him and michael jordan were jordan the first yes guy fair absolutely Those were the first two guys where um it wasn't about the item it was about the endorser of the item mm-hmm. um and it's a cross trainer the but the shoe the bow was a part of was a cross trainer and nike came up with this shoe several years pre-bow and they actually had howie long as one of the endorsers on a triathlon and it did nothing and they came up with this whole idea Bo knows, Bo knows, Bo knows. And the thing is, he was not a charismatic speaker, and he had a stutter. So you couldn't have these commercials with a lot of Bo dialogue, and these commercials did not. And the big moment for Bo, uh, 1989 Major League All-Star game, Nike decides you're going to premiere this ad. Bo, you don't know Diddley ad. With all the different athletes saying, Bo knows soccer, Bo knows this. And um, in the first, the, uh, the Nike executives all gathered in Manhattan at Mickey Mantle's restaurant to watch the game. And the first inning of the All Star Game, Bo Jackson leads off. Second pitch from Rick Russell. This is at Angel Stadium. He hits just a massive home run to dead center.
1: Yeah.
0: Ronald Reagan and Vince Scully in the booth. <laughs> and a beautiful, gorgeous Southern California day. And Bo is trotting around the bases like a champion. And in Mickey Mantle's restaurant, the Nike executives are losing their their crap and they're jumping up <laughs> and down and screaming and hugging because they know they just hit the marketing jackpot. And that was really the launch of Bo' knows.
1: Yeah, a, a remarkable story, and really, there, there's no—I don't care how good a Hollywood writer is, you could not have scripted it better. You just could not have. I mean, it came no. all together so well, and it's it's an amazing story and an amazing book. Jeff, you do such great work. We appreciate you spending the time with us, and uh, we can't wait to see your next book.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: All right, there you go. Jeff Perlman. Make sure you follow him on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman, and also check out his website, Jeff Perlman. Dot com. Great, great book. Make sure you pick it up. All right, we're going to step aside for a break. When we come back, we'll talk about Sunday's game against the Colts. You're listening to Silver and Black Today, here an Odyssey Original Podcast. Welcome back to Silver and Black Today, an Odyssey Original Podcast. Do us a favor, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, if you would do that for us, I would appreciate it. Uh, wherever you get your podcast, Also, if you're watching us on the YouTube channel, please hit subscribe. Plus, Hit the notifications bell so you know when we have a new video. Thank you so much for that. I am Scott Colbranson, your host, my co-host, Mo Moten. Still a little bit under the weather. We hope to have him back on Tuesday. Maybe tomorrow for the Friday mailbag show. We'll see how he's doing. Uh, but he's getting his rest and he's getting his uh, his game ready for Sunday covering uh, the NFL for Bleacher Report. So a shout-out to my friend Mo Moten, who will be back soon. All right, let's get into this. Uh, coming up on uh, uh, this game, this game is Sunday against the Colts. Uh, the Raiders. So so we've talked. I've heard a lot of gnashing of teeth. You've heard us go off on this show for the last week about this Raider team. First, the, the, the debacle in New Orleans. Then you go to Jacksonville, another 17-0 lead blown. So we've been hard on the Raiders. Jonathan Abram released, of course, this week as well. He is gone, the first-round pick. The draft class for John Gruden and Mike Mayock classes have really, t- in my view, set this team back three years. So if you look at that situation and saying goodbye to Jonathan Abram, they asked yesterday on Wednesday, uh, Josh McDaniels about it, and he said, hey, listen— we were going in a different direction. He didn't. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, he didn't go into detail. The reality is they weren't happy with Jonathan Abram. His playing time was being reduced. They were playing Trayvon Morig, who actually is not performing well either, but that's who they were committed to. So they were going with Trayvon Morig, and you saw Jonathan Abram on special teams more often, which is always a bad sign when you're a first-round draft pick and supposed to be a starting safety. Of course, the Green Bay Packers picked up Abram off waivers on Wednesday too, the same day he was released, uh, and so so uh, we wish him the best as well uh, to to further his career in Green Bay. But the reality is, the draft class. This is why the Raiders are two and six. I I understand you want to talk about Josh McDaniels and you want to talk about the coaching and the game play calling and the game management. That's all fair, and you know how I stand on that one. I've told you over the course of this week, starting with Murph and I on the post-game show and Evan and I on the post-game show leading into Tuesday's show. And now today, you know where I stand on it. They got to do better. Uh, Josh McDaniels has not done well, but he's not going anywhere. So that's the thing. i I hear, I'll see, I hear and see a lot of you with the fire McDaniels fire. And it's, it's a constant drumbeat from you, but the reality is, the reality is he's not going to go anywhere. Now, If something changes between now and the end of the season that changes Mark Davis's mind, that could happen too. I'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibilities, but at this point, I would say it's 95% chance Josh McDaniels is coming back next year because Mark Davis has already said it and they don't have the roster. I think that's the one thing that I take away and want to reiterate from Tuesday's show, which is we overestimated what this staff could do with the lack of talent they have. You see it on defense, not offense, but you see it on defense, especially. Defenses just don't have the players. They don't have it. They went out and tried to get some guys. Deron Harmon worked out. Rocky Seen worked out pretty much. But those aren't all pro-type players. Those aren't game changers, okay? Nate Hobbs has been injured, unfortunately. They're thin in the defensive backfield. They're weak up the middle at linebacker and on the defensive line. Although if you read my piece up on sportsnot.com, the Raiders players stock up and stock down piece that I published on Wednesday, um, you'll see, I put Cleve Farrell and Farrell Jr. as well there too. Cause I think they're getting better on the inside. Are they anywhere near where they need to be to make, to make a massive impact on this team? No, but that's okay. You got to have some positive news Raider nation. <laughs> you can't just wallow in your anger and self pity, Right. Um, You have to look at that. But anyway, so back to the point, the roster needs help. The roster needs help because of bad drafts. I say it almost every time on this show. The most valuable thing in the NFL is a great player or a very good player on a rookie contract. It allows you to have talent to cycle through your roster with guys that don't cost you as much and you can spend where you need to spend. Now, the Raiders will have cap room. They have decisions to make about Derek Carr, maybe even Darren Waller. By the way, we got a report on Darren Waller from Josh McDaniels, who said, I think he's going to be out there today. That was on Wednesday. We think he's turned the corner. Um, That's not exactly a a ringing endorsement. But I'm going to side with Darren Waller on if he's injured, he's injured. But again... You have to separate your emotional piece of wanting Darren Waller to be out there from is he really hurt? Because of the preseason stuff, some of you doubt that he's hurt. I don't doubt that he's hurt. Uh, Come on, he's hurt. What bothers me about him being hurt is not that I want him to rush back because that's a tough injury, by the way. It's a very tough injury. If If you come back too soon or you tweak it too much, you could lose even more time. What bothers me about it is the Raiders gave him the contract they gave him when they gave it to him. They should have waited until after the year. That's the only problem I've ever had it with. But that's where we are with the roster. Now, we look at this game against the Colts on Sunday at Allegiant Stadium. I know you guys are all be at their tailgating. It doesn't matter if the Raiders are 0-17, 16. You're going to be out there tailgating and having fun because you support your team. But this Colts team rolls in, fires Frank Reich, their head coach. They don't have a quarterback. Mike Ryan was a bust. They got this kid starting at quarterback. They have Jeff Saturday, the former offensive lineman for their team, beloved character in Indianapolis, was coaching high school and was asked by Jim Irsay, the owner, to come back and coach the team. This set the world on fire on many fronts. There's one front that believes that it violates the Rooney rule and people are upset about the racial component here. I don't understand that too much. I get it. I wouldn't want this job as an interim basis knowing that you're not going to win. Yes, you could You can maybe get some more out of these guys and do better than Reich was, but I just don't see it. That's just me, though. It's my perspective. If you differ on it, cool. You can make the point to me on social media or somewhere else. But the other part is he had no experience. National media has gone bonkers over this. They have gone absolutely ape you-know-what. I don't understand it. Like whatever, but Jim Irsay is a weird dude. He's a controversial owner in some ways, and so I understand it. But Jeff Saturday is the coach rolling into Vegas, and oh by the way, he's got no experienced offensive play caller. Right, so if the Raiders can't win this game, then we all—all all of us Raiders media. Raiders content producers, we might just need to shut it down because if the Raiders can't beat this team at home where they're at, then there's real problems. But I don't believe that'll happen. I really don't. I think this is the week the Raiders get back in the win column and they badly need it. They need it for confidence. They need it for all of you as fans. So you can go to work on Monday morning, feeling good about yourself and your Raiders gear. And the fact that they won. Uh, And they need to start building that home field advantage. I don't care what their record is. They just got to do it. And I think they will. You look at this Colts team. I think this is the week the offense puts it together. Now, last week I picked the Jaguars. So I was right about that. I was very pessimistic about this Raiders team. I'm still not convinced that they got it all together. I still think Derek Carr is not comfortable. I still think they're missing... Um, a rhythm to the offense. But something just tells me it's going to happen. Something tells me this game against the Colts is going to be a good one for the Raiders. I think the defense, because this team with the play calling and all that, yes, the Raiders don't know what's coming at them because they they have no game film to watch of what this guy's going to call because he's never called anything before. Crazy as that sounds. But I think the defense... With some of the movement, Jonathan Abram being gone, you know it sends a signal to the other players you, you better pick it up right I'm, we we just cut a first round draft pick so i I think these guys get it together. Are they going to be a great defense never never are they going to be a okay good defense no <laughs> not until they get bodies, but what they will do is play better so knowing that and knowing the disadvantage that the Colts have with a whole new coaching. Uh, philosophy, standard, inability to call plays because the guy's never called plays before, um, is I think you see that. And then I think you see a demoralized Colts team. Now, they're all professionals. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're going to go out and roll over. But when you're in that situation, it's tough. I mean, look at the Raiders situation at 2-6. and That's tough. Imagine your coach is gone, uh, and you have somebody else calling the plays, and you have this young quarterback who's not won a game, you know, it's, it's a bad mix. So here's what I got. I got the Raiders in this one, 31 to 20, 31 to 20. So I think they win pretty handily. I think that defense gives up 20. Could the defense give up 24? Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll change my projection As bad as the Raiders defense can be. I just think with a inexperienced play caller that they'll hold them to 20 or less. I know that would be a big victory but I think they do it Raiders 31 Colts 20. They're going to miss an extra point or something. I don't know how I don't get to the number. I'm just guessing, but anyway, that's what I think. And I think, I think this week you see a better week from Derek Carr. I think you see a better week from him and Devonte Adams. I think you see a better week with Hunter Renfro involved in the game. And if some, by some miracle, if Darren Waller gets out there, even on a limited basis, I think you get him active uh, and it changes the dynamic there. So We'll have to see it all goes down. But um, that's what I got, Raider Nation. I think it's going to be a good week for you. I'm here to affirm that your team will win. Bank it. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, but that's what I got for you. We're at the end of this show again. Thank you guys for being with us. And thank you very much to our special guest, Jeff Perlman, author of The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Seriously, folks, go read the book. As a Raider fan, as a Bo fan, you're going to love doing it. Just a phenomenal walk down memory lane for me, but also uh, just, I think, a great insight into the man that is Bo Jackson and the player that is Bo Jackson and what motivates him and why he was different and why he truly is, in addition to being an amazing football and baseball player, uh, he really was a folk hero and perhaps the last one because of how everything now is filmed and on tape and uh, on your phone and all the social media channels, all that stuff, just a very different time and probably the last guy who will ever capture the imagination like that. All right, for my co-host, Mo Moten, I am Scott Uh This has been Silver and Black Today, an Odyssey Original Podcast. We'll talk to you soon, Raider Nation. Enjoy the game and hang in there. It will get better. Take care, everybody.